thank you so much for joining Really Specific Stories, Marco. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me here. This is great. Great honor. I'm honored too. Now, first question, as is the case with every participant, how did you first get into podcasts? I think my, my story is, the, is a very similar story, but at a much earlier time than many people. I was bored while driving and then later while walking to work. That's it. Like those are, and, and so, you know, it just for me, it happened pretty early on. Like we, my wife and I started listening to podcasts before we were even married on long road trips and early days like this, you know, this was like, you know, 2005, 2006, really early days. We would listen to just the handful that were out then, you know, you'd have things like, I, I mean, I believe the Twit network was operating back then, um, you know, you know, stuff like Mac break weekly. I, I'm pretty sure that was, or at least this week in tech, I, I, I think those were there back then. I remember listening to an old show called the word nerds, which is all about like, you know, word origins and stuff like that. And, and back then the, the variety of shows, it, it was kind of all over the map because they were small in number, but nobody really knew how to make podcasts yet. And so there were all these different formats people would use. Some people would do it like a radio show where they would talk for a while and then just play a song and then get back to talking for a while. And then like it was it, no one really knew what to do with the medium yet. And then my clearest memories when I was really getting into them, besides just long road trips, like when it became an everyday thing for me was my early days at Tumblr. I was working in the city and I, I would have you know a decent commute to the city. I'd take the train and then walk for like 20 minutes. That was 2006 to 2007, and I would listen almost every day to some kind of podcast on the way there. Either uh, "You Look Nice Today," which was very, you know, very good, formative for me back then. I believe the Ricky Gervais podcast was over by then, but when that was on, I listened to that a lot. And the Stack Overflow podcast, which is still going today, <laughs> and it says, you know, that because that was when they were developing Stack Overflow, and they, uh, Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood the two main co-founders, I believe, um, they did a podcast where they were kind of just explaining their thought process of developing Stack Overflow, how they were building it, the choices they were making, why they were making it. Um, and that was all, you know, super early days. And and yeah, and I can't give enough credit to You Look Nice Today. I mean, anybody who knows me from ATP, if you didn't listen to You Look Nice Today, you might not realize how much of my editing style and and how much of just my general like kind of podcast sense of humor I just straight up lifted from You Look Nice Today. Like it was a huge influence on me and I think the whole world of podcasts around like my circle now. Whenever I'm editing ATP, what I'm really doing is totally ripping off their style in the context of a tech podcast. I think it's really interesting in there that you said that you listened to podcasts with your wife. Was that correct? Yeah, for long road trips. Yeah, you know, we would try we tried audiobooks here and there, but podcasts really stuck with us more. You know, we'd be driving, you know, driving across Pennsylvania, you know, takes forever. <laughs> and we'd have a number of hours to spare in the car. And, and yeah, we'd listen to podcasts. And, and at the time, you know, the playback device was a little bit in flux at the time. Oftentimes, we would be burning them to CDRs as MP3s. And I had like an MP3 CD player in the car. <laughs> so that that was the early version, uh, you know, running through a cassette adapter into the into the car's head unit. <laughs> you know, that was the early version of podcast. Later on, I did eventually get an iPod, the iPod video. So it was pretty late in the iPod age, really. And then uh, soon after that, I, I, I got an iPhone and, then, and that was it. So that's really interesting to me because when you talk to a lot of people about listening to podcasts, it's a very stereotypically individual or solitary experience with the headphones in, but you were sharing it in a car with a loved one. How would you explain the kind of experience or shared memory that you would have of listening to podcasts together? I think, I mean, you're right that it is largely, I think, a solitary medium, 
but I think more people listen together in the car than you than you might expect. Based on feedback I've gotten over the years as both a podcaster and as the you know developer of a podcast app, it seems like listening together in a car is actually pretty common. Um, now, whether both people in the relationship can agree on what to listen to, uh, or you know whether one is being very kind to the other, <laughs> that, that varies. And so from that angle, you know, I knew on my long car trips, I knew that like I would save the tech shows for when my wife was asleep or when I was driving alone. <laughs> you know, because just out of courtesy to her, because she really didn't care that much about some of the, you know, some of the nerdery they were getting into. And so we would find these common shows that we would enjoy together that were, you know, things like comedy shows, storytelling shows, you know, obviously the old This American Life that was back then, um, Ricky Gervais again, that was, I would listen to that with her as well. Um, so there was a lot of that. And largely at that time, I wasn't really needing to listen to podcasts much outside of that because at that time I didn't have a long commute. Um, so my day, my day to day, like, you know, going to work and back was not really listening to podcasts. And what I found, you know, as a, as a person and as a podcast, you know, business person, podcast listening correlates pretty strongly to how people and when people are commuting. Like for instance, like at the beginning of COVID, I saw a huge drop off in usage. I also see drop offs in usage on the weekends um, it just, you know, there's a, there's a direct relationship between how much people are commuting and how much they, li- they listen to podcasts. Um, and that isn't the only time people listen, but that is certainly a big time. And, and so I didn't have that back then. So I was, my, my listening was more communal, like only during road trips, basically the, the way many people listen to audiobooks today. You know, many people will, will kind of save up an audiobook until they have a long drive to do and then listen to it then. Uh, that's kind of what podcasts were to me at the beginning. And frankly, there weren't that many of them, so I couldn't really, you know, it wasn't like I had this giant surplus of podcasts that I just couldn't get to all of them in time, and I had to listen all throughout the week. Like it was it was more like the three podcasts I would listen to at any given time would release episodes every week or two, and maybe, and so I would like save them up for road trips. Yeah, and you mentioned the Twit Network for your personal tech podcast listening. Can you tell me more about that experience about listening to tech podcasts in that early time and what some of the shows were that you were listening to, what you got out of it at that time? I know that there was that like there were there were radio shows or cable TV shows about tech, you know, many times featuring like Leo Laporte and these many of the same people before tech podcasts were a thing. But I never had any of those. I never had access to them for whatever reason. Either, you know, they weren't broadcast in my area because, you know, I'm just from Ohio. It wasn't like a, a tech hub at the time. So they, they weren't broadcast in my area or in the case of cable, like I didn't get those channels or we didn't have the right cable package or whatever. So there really was no tech media that was available to me except web pages, you know, like, you know, web publications and print magazines. Like that was where I got all my tech news before that. I, I had no tech audio or video or you know TV, nothing like that. So podcasts at the time, and I think they still serve this role today to some degree, they were like one of the only ways I could get this information uh, in in like a dynamic form like that. And it was amazing to me. So I was like, oh my God, I, I can be driving my car listening to tech stuff. Like that concept was totally novel because there were no like, you know, AM talk radio tech stations in Ohio and Pennsylvania. Uh, it just wasn't a thing. So it really served a, a wonderful role for me back then. It, it was so novel that I could hear people talking about nerdy stuff in what appeared, you know, in form to basically be a radio show uh, that was also on demand. Like it was it was magical. That This is one of the reasons why I think so many early podcast consumers were nerds like me. 
because most of us didn't have access to that kind of stuff. And it was novel for most of us. And the the technological um, barriers that were in place that made it a little bit hard for many people to access podcasts were less important and less restrictive to us because we were already nerds. We knew how to operate nerdy stuff. Uh, So it played a huge early role in podcasting for sure. And, And I think, you know, while podcasting has gotten a lot bigger today and in the intervening decades since then, tech, I think, is still a really strong core of it. And we're not the biggest by any means. You know, comedy and storytelling and true crime, those categories are all way bigger than tech. And tech will never be as big as the mainstream stuff, you know, the the celebrity podcast now. Now we're back, like, in our corner, (laughs) you know. But tech has always been, like, the stronghold of podcasting. It's been there since the beginning. It will hopefully always be there. And nerds like me will always really appreciate it, despite whatever happens in the larger podcasting landscape. You've called yourself a nerd which I love. And naturally you have this history or passion for technology that led you to listen to and want to make podcasts for a living. That's brought you to this point. Can you tell me what that spark, that initial story was for you with technology? What was your earliest experience that brought you into this lifelong interest? You know, I don't, I'm not sure I can pinpoint it to a specific thing. I've always loved technology, both like physical and conceptual. Like when I was a kid, my mom's friends would give us, and if they had like a broken VCR or something, they would give it to me so I could take it apart and just like play with all the stuff inside. Like that's, that's the kind of kid I was, you know, I was like, you know, people would give me old stuff to just take apart. And our garage was full of random electronic crap I had taken apart. (laughs) You know, I didn't even have a computer until I was uh, about, 13 something like that um 14 and before that like i would use computers at other people's houses or in school computer labs to you know to the small degree those existed back then and i was just fascinated by them i loved computers you know that any little bit of time i would get with one I, I absolutely loved it i didn't know what i was doing on a computer but i just loved doing it i was one of the people who would just love to use it just for the sake of using it even though i had no real work to do on it like even my first computer i didn't even have internet access for for a year or two after i got it I would just play on the computer. I would just like, and not only games, I would like open up MS Paint and just draw stuff. I would, you know, poke around the different programs on the computer and see what, what do these things do? Uh, you know, move files around, whatever it was. I was just happy to use the computer. I don't think there's any particular inciting incident that made me want to be a tech person. I've just always been drawn to it. I've always loved it. And, you know, certain people are drawn to, you know, sports or different activities or different passions. And, and this was mine. I have uh, no control over it, and I'm kind of happy that I, that I landed where I did, where I did, because turns out tech is awesome, and and I was very fortunate that this thing that drew me in, that I was like you know born to do, happened to also have a career associated with it that I had access to. And how did that initial interest that developed over time and experimenting with computers at home and around family, how did that lead to developing skills in programming or software development? It took a little while for me to figure out how how I could access programming on my computer. I'd known from early on about the basic programming language from various sources. You know, back, this was, I was coming up in the, you know, this was like the early to mid 90s. And at the time, there were like magazines, like there was a 321 Contact magazine that they would have basic programs printed like on a page as source code in the magazine so that you could copy the code off this page. You could type it all in and run it on whatever computer you had that had basic. And I had at the time I had a, I had a Windows 3.1 PC and I didn't know enough about it to know how to access a lot of stuff. And it, you know, you'd turn it on and it would just boot into Windows and that would be it. And Windows 3.1 didn't have any kind of obvious way for me to get to a basic prompt. 
And so I would like write down programs on paper. I just love the concept of basic. I, I would get books out of the library on it because I just it just kind of seemed cool to me. I didn't really have access to it for a while until one day one of those magazines had printed like in the little corner of it, here's how to access basic on, you know, if you have this kind of computer, if you have this kind of computer. And it's like at the DOS prompt, type in QBasic. And I tried that and I'm like, oh my God, this is how to do it. It's here. <laughs> and so I spent the next couple of years really just playing in QBasic. You know, QBasic had, it was the DOS basic interpreter and it was my fir- the first programming language I had access to. And that was on my home computer. I couldn't believe it. I could type in whatever I wanted. And it had built-in documentation and everything. Because, you know, it was made, this was in the days when most things were totally offline. My whole computer was offline. I, I didn't have access to anything. So the developer environment was made to kind of be self-sufficient, to explain itself. It had all built-in documentation, all built-in tools. I understood almost none of the tools. You know, it had like debugging and built-in and everything. I, under- I understood none of that. But... I had access to basic then and it just kind of went from there. I was I was mostly self-taught until college. I would get a book out of the library sometimes. I would, you know, get a magazine sometimes that would tell me certain things, but for the most part it was banging my head against the wall in QBasic and you know, checking the documentation, figuring stuff out and very slowly becoming a self-taught programmer. Wow, I love the idea that you were actually taking stuff from print. That's really intriguing. Oh, it was terrible. It was, it was terrible. <laughs> No nostalgia involved. If you made one mistake, like one typo, if when you were entering in the program, like that'd be it. Good luck finding it and, uh, you know, just try again. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I can't imagine. But as you moved from that self-taught environment into college, as you said, in a more formal learning environment, what was that experience like moving into a place where you were really, really focused on learning that? It was great. I mean, and I, I'm not a good student in most ways. Like I, I don't really... I'm not really motivated to do homework and stuff like that. I've always had problems with that. And there were certain parts about even computer science that kind of went over my head or or didn't interest me, but I found enough that did. And it was amazing because, you know, I, when I got to college, I had a, a whole middle school and high school experience of basic programming. I had never done anything besides basic. Um, I, I eventually moved from QBasic to Visual Basic, <laughs> but that was that was my entire experience at that point. And college introduced me to C and the Unix stack and that kind of stuff. And it was, I mean, it was it was very rudimentary in what I was working on. I was working on these like old, you know, Sun Spark stations running Solaris and stuff like that. Eventually, when we moved to Linux, like in the in the in the older years of college, but but it was you know very rudimentary stuff. But I was writing straight C code and getting segmentation faults and all the stuff that C programmers do. <laughs> um, uh, you know, learning the basics of getting around a Unix command line, stuff like that. It, it was very different than what I had done before with Visual Basic, but I, I found that I really enjoyed it. I loved working at a low level. I love learning about this whole world that existed outside of the, the Windows world that I knew. This is before I was a Mac person. Uh, like, all I knew was Windows PCs. And then there was this whole world of all these cool, like, Linux and Unix programmers that were doing their own thing and didn't give a crap about my Windows PCs. And at first I found it kind of off-putting, but eventually I'm like, oh, wait, this is a lot of advantages. <laughs> mm. It was glorious because that, that was my first actual education in programming. You know, my, at the time, most high schools and middle schools did not have coding courses. Like now, they're, now it's much more commonplace, thank goodness. But in the late 90s, when I was like in high school, that, that didn't exist. Like at least at least didn't exist in Ohio, <laughs> maybe other places. I'm sure California had a lot of them, but Ohio sure didn't. Um, so from high school, I was I was all self-taught 
college was the first time when I had actual experts that that were actually teaching me <laughs> in in a professional way, you know, how programming works and and how to how to write in, you know, more advanced languages than basic and and exposing me to the rest of the world of programming besides just my little visual basic, you know, hole I was in. So college was amazing for me, even though I was a C student, just like any, just like the rest of my life. And I, you know, academically speaking, it, it was challenging as as any academic setting ever was for me. But intellectually speaking, uh, and and especially in regards to computer science, I got a lot out of it. And once that world had been opened up to you, exploring different systems, different languages, hearing experiences from different people, where did that new knowledge take you? At first, it didn't take me very far because. While I was good at the academic side of it, and I could code, which not everybody who who majors in computer science or gets a gets a degree in computer science, not every not every one of those people can write code. It seems counterintuitive, but it's true. <laughs> and and so I I could actually code, and so that gave me an advantage in terms of like applicable skills in the job market. But what I really didn't know and didn't get you know a good head start on is how important connections are and internships and stuff like that. Like to in order to get a job. You can't just graduate with a computer science degree and say, all right, world, give me a job. You know, it takes more than that. You have to, like, get your name in places, use any kind of social connections that you or your parents or your friends might have. You got to, like, use them. Hey, do you know anybody, you know, looking for a programmer? You, know, you got to push all that. And it took me a few months after college to really kind of realize, oh, wait a minute, I have no leads I didn't do what I was supposed to do in terms of getting summer internships during college and stuff like that. I didn't do any of that. I didn't know I was supposed to. No one, like, no one handed me a booklet saying, "Here's what you have to do for you know get your career started." Um, I was lucky that one of the members of my graduating class had recently gotten a job in Pittsburgh at this company called Vivisimo. It doesn't exist anymore, but they briefly made uh, the Clusty search engine, which people might be familiar with. But th- their main product was uh, was enterprise uh, software. And my my classmate had gotten a job there and she had reached out to me and said, hey, we're looking for somebody else. Do you want to come interview? And so I got in my car. I drove to Pittsburgh. <laughs> Thank God for her connection to this company because I never would have found it otherwise. And and that started my career in programming. And what was that first role like for you? Oh, it was amazing because I got my butt kicked. Because <laughs> So I, I, I walk into this job. The reason I got the job was because part of the interview was a C programming test. And I had just done C a lot in college. I understood it pretty well. I wasn't making constant, you know, memory errors and stuff the way a lot of people would if they weren't too familiar with the language. And I aced the programming test. And so they were willing to overlook my crappy academic record um, and my lack of any internships and any experience <laughs> um, because they said so few people passed their their programming test. And it was it was something like, you know, one of those standard like C interview things of like, uh, may, you know, write a program that, you know, counts duplicate input lines. It was I think, something like that. And so there's a couple of op- opportunities to like allocate memory or fail to do so or do things wrong. And so they can kind of gauge like, do you really understand much of this language or not? And that job, it was incredibly formative for me because, first of all, you know, whatever academic path I took, I didn't learn about stuff like version control and bug tracking and all those kind of, you know, the, I, I learned computer science, I learned algorithms and, and data structures and stuff like that. And so that job taught me the basics of like, here's how you actually get work done in the real world with a team. You have the meetings that are, where you tell people what you're doing, you assign tasks, you have this bug tracker that you know, helps you organize things, you have version control to help you manage the code base and everything. Um, so that was great for that. And then also, I was working in C in a low level language with programmers who were just way better than me. And, and of course, way more experienced as well. So I walked in there thinking I was a hotshot 
because I was a 22 year old who like knew how to write C. I'm like, yeah, I'm a programmer. This is great. I'm smart. <laughs> and I got there. And I'm like, oh my God, I got my butt kicked because I was not nearly as smart as I thought I was. <laughs> and they, in the most graceful way, formed me into a better programmer. <laughs> <laughs> and uh you know with with much more experienced people you know being my bosses and my my coworkers so that i learned a ton from that job and i was only there for 2 years um but it was it was incredibly influential and formative and what happened at the end of those 2 years um for various reasons uh my wife and i wanted to move to new york that that's our was in pittsburgh and and so we moved to new york and i looked for a job on craigslist and that job became tumblr and then I was there for four years, and then I left that and became an indie app developer. And that's that's how I got here. That's pretty amazing. That's a huge shift. And people listening naturally would know that Tumblr is a major part of your history. Can you tell me about the experience of working at Tumblr, what that meant to you and how it shaped you and led you to that indie role that you just mentioned? Oh, sure. I mean, when I was first moving to the city, looking for a job, First of all, I had tried all the West Coast tech companies to see maybe I want to maybe I want to work on the West Coast. None of them even called me back. Like no, I couldn't get I couldn't even get a phone call from any of them. Except eventually, Amazon did a phone interview. It took forever to arrange. After the phone interview, no one got back to me either way for a few weeks, and then I heard the person I was interviewing with was fired, and, <laughs> and then it fell on the floor and never went anywhere again. So I didn't have any any luck getting into the tech companies. West Coast is out then. We'll move, move, move to New York. Moved to New York. I had a couple offers. Bloomberg uh, Technology was one of them. And what the, the, the small consultancy called Davidville that would become Tumblr. And I chose Davidville over Bloomberg because David was this cool young guy who would let me work on a Mac. And I'm like, well, this is great. I've been using a PC all this time. Now I can work on a Mac. This is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I chose that even though it was like it seemed really like not stable or not not safe of a choice you know bloomberg was this big company that had a big glass building and all these people inside who were really smart way smarter than me and it seemed like a really safe choice but the actual work i would be doing i think would be fairly miserable for me because i don't care about finance i didn't like the the tech situation that they had going on there it was very you know pc based a lot of like super old code like i think like fortran running on their their like main stuff it was it would it would it would have been a different scene for sure. Whereas Davidville was like, here, I'll buy you a Mac laptop and we're gonna make websites with PHP. I'm like, great, <laughs> sold. <laughs> so I I chose that instead. Um and then and Tumblr kind of came up from almost by chance. I mean, we were making websites for for other people as a consultancy, and we had a small gap of like a few weeks between clients. And David was like, Hey, I, I want to make this thing. I've had this idea for a little while. Let's build it in a couple of weeks, see what happens. That was Tumblr. And we built it and eventually we dropped our, you know, it took maybe six months before we dropped all of our consulting work and focused just on that. Uh, but that's how that went. And then because it was taking off like crazy, you know, David went out and got funding so that we wouldn't have to worry about where the bills were, how the bills were being paid. And it was, whew, it was quite a ride. <laughs> I learned so much there because here I was like, you know, a 20 something year old working with a 19 year old <laughs> mm. uh, on this thing that was exploding in popularity and i didn't know how to scale stuff i didn't know how to write like this super intricate code like i learned along the way it's like you're going along riding a train and you're like you're building the track in front of you as the train is moving like that's that's how it felt we would face problems like you know okay well we we have this they have this server and it's reaching its limits we have to scale it to multiple servers or spread this out somehow 
how do you do that? And we look at each other like, I don't know. Do you know? No. Like, oh, I heard this term sharding before. You want to look, see what that means? Yeah, sure. I'll look it up. And, you know, it was that kind of thing. You know, we would occasionally meet with other people or, you know, have ch- have like phone calls. Like our, our investors would set up like we'd set up a meeting between me and somebody who worked at Twitter, or, like tell me how they did stuff. You know, there'd be occasional help like that. But for the most part, we were kind of plowing through figuring stuff out on our own. And it was quite a ride. And it was very stressful. But I learned a lot, too. You know, David is David Carp, the, the, you know, the founder of Tumblr. He's really a genius in, in a lot of ways, and he has incredible product sensibility. He's very, very good at making product decisions and product designs. Um, he's also very good at, at, at marketing those designs and, and getting a lot of those details right. And I learned a ton from him on how to do all that stuff. It was very influential in, in my life, um, you know, both working with him and working on that product, uh, you know, working on Tumblr. It, it was massively influential. It leveled me up so much that you know I, first of all i never want to do it again <laughs> it was a lot of stress <laughs> but it it leveled me up in a lot of ways that enabled me to to do what i do now which is you know make apps like that without the tumblr experience i would not have been qualified to do this not from a, not from a technical side but from a like product design side I, I got a lot of good product sensibility from working at tumblr with david and and i wouldn't have gotten that otherwise and so it was extremely formative it was a heck of a ride. I mean, geez, the the stress, the you know, the the ups and downs of that ride. It was a lot, and and that's why I would never do it again. Like now, I'm too old for that. <laughs> now I'm like, I just, I'm I'm almost forty one. I'm like this, you know, this. I, I know that in in general terms, that's not very old, but but in you know, for like staying up all night programming work, that is, you know, I'm I'm out of that. <laughs> You've had that experience. You've addressed that. Yeah, exactly. That's it, it. It's like it's like college. You know, you look back in college. Well, I, I would stay up all night partying in college and be able to go function the next day. Like that doesn't happen a- anymore when you're 40. And you know, similarly, like the the startup lifestyle of that crazy roller coaster where you just you can never stop moving because if you stop at all, your site explodes. Like that, I'm done with that now. But I had that. It was a fun ride. Now, I'm really interested in what you were saying in that story of Tumblr there. Blogging in general or a platform like Tumblr, in essence, has some crossover or similar ideas to that of podcasting, the idea of sharing something about yourself or connecting with other people online. When you were building Tumblr together through that stressful ride, as you described it, do you recall any ideals or aims that you had for Tumblr? What did you imagine that it would be? when you were working on it? The biggest, I think, shift that we had while developing it was when we were first developing it, it was initially made to just be a publishing platform, not a social tool. Hmm. The social features were added like a couple years in or like a year a year or two in. They, originally, it was basically just like a, a CMS that you, you would, it was just a free CMS. You could go and make your own tumble log is what we called them. And uh, and that and we didn't invent that term. Like there was there were a couple other tumble logs that existed before Tumblr. And David saw them and thought the format was cool and was like I'm going to make a tool to make this easy. And then all the social stuff like with the dashboard and the reblogging, all this stuff that all came later. Uh, that was not part of the original conception of the product. And so part of it was we had to kind of grow into being a social product. And this was at a time, you know, at this time MySpace was already out and very well established. Facebook was already out and very well established. Facebook had, had kicked MySpace's butt by that point, um, but they were both still existing. LiveJournal was around, but it wasn't. Neither of us were really familiar with it, and there were a couple other you know social kind of sites, Friendster, but it, it wasn't like today's environment of social networks. 
Twitter was around at the time, much, much, much smaller. We didn't have the scale that we have now in social products. We didn't have the abuse. We didn't have the spam. We didn't have the harassment, the problems with things like racism and white supremacy. We didn't have that as much back then to the scale it is now. Obviously, there was always some degree. Any social product, you'll have some of that stuff. But what you, what you have today is a whole different ballgame. So we were able back then to be a much smaller team and to make much more, I think, risky or bold product decisions because it was a very, very small world compared to what we have today. And so as we were growing this into a social product, we made a lot of decisions that were kind of against the norm at the time. You know, Facebook, this was a time when Facebook was really building its dominance. And Facebook was all about using your real name, your real identity, and using the product to find connections to people who you knew in real life. And David and I kind of thought that was gross. Like that, that there was, you know, there's a place for that, but that shouldn't be the only place. And that shouldn't be the only option. For many of us, and this goes back to, you know, being a nerd, for many of us, the real world is not a comfortable place or does not have a lot of the people that we want to hang out with or expose ourselves emotionally and expose our ideas to or show our work to. You know, many people don't find their communities that easily in real life. And to the people who do, they don't even see that as a thing. Like, if you're the kind of person who can just, like, walk into any bar and make small talk with all the strangers and get along really well with them and have a totally easy time and not have any stress about that, that's great. And you, and those kind of people tend to think they're the only kind of people because that part of life has been easy for them. But a lot of people, that's not the case for, including me and David. <laughs> and so we built Tumblr. We designed everything from the start to be more of like a like a nerd or artist or outcast kind of paradise because that's what we wanted because that's what we needed. We didn't want all of our like people we knew in real life, you know, our, our family and our bosses. We didn't want them finding our blogs. So that's why everything on Tumblr is anonymous first. You know, it's all about you can create your identity. It can be whatever you want and you can have multiple Tumblr blogs and they can all have different identities. And if you don't tell people this is my secret comic blog or whatever, they can't tell. They can't, they can't figure out that's you. And we did things that we thought were socially healthy for people compared to how things were done. Like we did, um, you know, it, it was a one-way following system, you know, like Twitter, but we didn't show follower counts in most places. We, we tried to make it as kind of low-key as possible, try to reduce the kind of emotional burden and emotional load, make it less about stats and more about positive-only reinforcement. So we'll show you how many likes you get. We're not going to show you, we're not going to make a dislike mechanism, you know? You can follow people, but, you know, they can't tell that you're following them, and so you can unfollow them. It's it, that kind of thing. You can you can use your real name or not, and most people don't, and it's fine. You can make your anonymous art blog, and no one's going to know it's you. That kind of outlet at the time really didn't exist because you either had blogs like, you know, WordPress sites and everything, which you had some of that going on there, but because it wasn't free to host them in, in general, at least in most places, in most ways, you, you had to pay and Tumblr was free. So we got a lot of people who couldn't pay or didn't want to pay for stuff. And then we also got all the people who didn't want to use their real names uh, for, for lots of reasons, many of them very good reasons. So it kind of made Tumblr a place for artists and outcasts and nerds queer community really had a blast there and and found it to be a safe space which i'm very proud of obviously you know not every story is that good but i i think overall it it, it was overall a safe space 
And it was amazing to have built that for people. You know, I, I will occasionally hear people now talk about like the time they spent on Tumblr. I just, I'm talking about it as if it's in the past. It's still around, but it, it is smaller than it used to be for the various, various things that have happened. But people talk fondly about Tumblr as like the safe space they were able to like hang out and be themselves when they were younger usually. And it's kind of funny because most of the time period that they talk about is after I left. I was there from, from its start in 2006 until late 2010. And then I left. And when you ask people what years they use Tumblr, usually they started after 2010. So the version of it that I saw was very different than than what it became for most people. But even the version I saw, I, we were very careful to make it that kind of safe space for you know cool people who like didn't quite fit the mold of the buttoned up Facebook of the world where you had to sh- have your real name and your parents would see everything you posted and everybody and your boss could see it and say you know you could get in trouble for stuff you posted on Facebook like no if you if you wanted to have like you know your, whatever your cool anime blog on Tumblr no one know it's you and that's totally fine and you could hang and you could find other people like you and this could kind of be your hangout place that's what it was we were incredibly proud of that and I don't think there was a lot else out there at the time that did that. That's awesome. And I totally appreciate what you're saying about giving a safe place to people of the queer community or different minorities or even just not wanting to share your name. That's Mm -hmm. a very big deal and speaks to the kind of ideals of the web or being able to communicate how you wish safely and comfortably. Something or a few things you said in there, words like nerd, artist, outcast, it kind of lit up this light bulb in my head about the crazy ones and the idea of using a Mac. And you said that you wanted to earlier in that story just there that you were keen on working at Tumblr because you could use a Mac. Now, I'm interested in that tech history that you shared. What was that moment of going from that Windows environment that you'd been used to to the Mac environment? So when I uh, left college in 2004, I got my first Mac because I, I knew I'd be moving around a bit as I got my career you know, settled and I wanted a laptop, and Apple made the best laptops. And and I, I had some some graduation money from various family they'd given, and it was just enough to buy a laptop. And like I was like, all right, great, I'm finally gonna be able to afford to buy a Mac laptop. I, I heard they were really good. And at that time, I'd been using PCs since I was a teenager, and I was kind of getting tired of how much work and maintenance Windows required to stay healthy and running well. You know, I would have to like reinstall Windows every, you know, nine months or whatever. Like, and I was just getting tired of it. And it was fun for a while when I was younger, when I was in, in high school and middle school. That, you know, that was like a cool tinkering kind of thing. As I got older, I realized like that I'm, I'm wasting a lot of time on this and I, I kind of don't want to be doing this anymore. Um, I'd rather, you know, kind of move up the stack and start, you know, building, you know, spending more time programming, more, more time building stuff. So anyway, uh, I, I wanted to move to the Mac. I was able to do it with that college graduation money with the laptop, but I still had my PC desktop and I would go to work every day at the Pittsburgh job and I would use a PC desktop there. And I remember there was this one day where Windows Update decided in the middle of the night at like on my, on my work computer, it rebooted my computer to install an update. And it lost all the work that I, all the windows I had open. It lost a couple of unsaved, you know, documents and stuff. It lost all the, because it, it forced, it forced restarted the whole computer without my permission, without warning me ahead of time. So I walked in one morning and my computer was all reset and a little helpful dialogue. Your computer was restarted to install this update or whatever. And I said, that's it. And I unplugged the monitor from the PC tower and I plugged in my laptop. I connected the, the cable, plugged it into the, to the DVI port of my laptop. I was like, I'm just going to use my Mac. 
plug the keyboard into it, plug the mouse into it. And like, you know, cause and at that job, fortunately that was possible because what we were mostly doing was coding in terminal windows, like using Vim logged into a Linux server that was actually hosting our development environment. So all I needed was terminal windows and email and like a web browser. It's like, well, I have all those on my, on my Mac laptop here. So I just started bringing my laptop every day. And I started, I started doing all my work on the laptop. My work PC slowly, you know, went into disrepair and I pretty much never used it. And so then when I was changing jobs, moving to New York, I had already been accustomed to working on a Mac from that time. I had loved it so much. But, you know, in 2006, which is when I was looking for these jobs, not a lot of professional programming jobs would even be able to have you use a Mac. Most of them were, were jobs that re, that required Windows just for the environment that you'd be working in, with the exception of web development jobs. You know, this was the time, this was the rise of Ruby on Rails, TextMate, the nice early Mac web development boom. This was all going in 2006. So I was able to kind of choose between like, you know, the, the kind of old world of programming of working on some giant, you know, mainframe using a PC terminal with a little, you know, wedge of space on a cubicle line uh, at Bloomberg, or I could go work for this young guy in this weird cartoon office and he would let me work on a Mac, which I, I had already be, you know, been kind of addicted to at that point. So it was kind of a no brainer. It's like, all right, well, this weird cartoon job with this young guy, it was like, it was a little bit less money. And it seemed less stable. My mom thought I was nuts for like turning down a job at like this established company, Bloomberg, you know, to go work for some guy. I was like, I, I really think I will, I will enjoy this better. <laughs> and and uh, and I did. And it was, oh, it was amazing and to be able to work on a Mac full time. And, and David was also a Mac nerd. So like to be able to work on a Mac full time and have like all the good equipment, like I got the big monitors and, and that was, that was right when the Intel transition was, was going. And so I got a, I got the first white plastic MacBook, and it was so much faster than my, than my G4 uh, power book. It was a great time to be a Mac user. And, and I felt, I felt like I was getting away with something like, wait, I can go work at my full time job on a Mac all day. <laughs> like I, I'm like, I, I, this, this has to be some kind of trick. Like surely I'm not going to get paid to work on a Mac all day, but that's what it was. It was amazing. And, and at the time, that again, that was, that was very rare, except in web development. And, and so that's why I went that direction. And as you were diving further and further into the brand, consuming more Apple stuff, using more Apple stuff, what kind of news or publications or other things were you enjoying as an adjacent part of that fandom? The Apple tech podcast thing was still pretty young in 2006, 2007. Like that, that was the time I was, I was more into like, you know, you look nice today, this American life, you know, that the stack overflow podcast like that. Mm. It, there weren't a lot of tech shows that, that really grabbed my attention back then. I think most of the tech podcast renaissance happened maybe five or six years later, like around, you know, if you look at like 2010, you have things like um, obviously five by five came out. That was a you know, I, I was part of it. So, you know, I can't, I can't really take full credit, but I, but I think that that formed a pretty strong community and moved tech podcasting into new audiences and, and new directions. And so I, I think five by five, you can't overstate how influential that was at the time. And then also, you know, the stuff that was going on with, with Twit, you know, getting bigger over time and everything. So the podcast world was being, was great at the time. Also just, you know, the, the web publications were really strong for tech and most of them, I don't even think are operating anymore. That was the era of the big like Weblogs Inc. blogs. You know, you had like Engadget and you know Gizmodo and like that whole battle between those two things. Like all those sites started around that time frame. Lifehacker was big back then. Um, that kind of stuff. 
and the world of blogs, you know, podcasts were still in their infancy for tech stuff then, but blogs were, I think, in their heyday. That was like, that was the peak of blogs. We had, you know, all of us nerds were using RSS readers and we had all these amazing blogs that were were launching and getting popular and it was an incredible time for blogs. That's where we got all of our news. Dig was really popular. Like, you know, you'd go, this is kind of where Instapaper came from. Go and find like all the cool stories of the day on Dig. Um, Reddit was just getting started uh, around that time. You know, Hacker News came a little bit later, I think, but it was, you know, similar relative time frame. So you had this amazing world of blogs and blog posts and, and news articles and opinion articles and stuff like that. They were all flying around and, and we were building all these great tools around them and these great networks and you'd send traffic, these these big, you know, you'd get, you know, these huge flows of traffic from Dig and stuff like that. It was a cool time and it was, it was an amazing time for blogs and the RSS ecosystem that I really miss that now. And there's a lot of reasons why, why it went away or, or, or got, got much smaller. Some of them are good reasons, some of them are bad reasons, but it, it's been a lot, it's multi, multivariate, lots of reasons why, why that's, that happened. But I, I miss that world and I, I think back on it very fondly. It was, it was really an amazing time for blogs and RSS. And during this golden age that you're talking about, what was it like to make that leap to being an independent developer? And how did you use that to enter the world of podcasting? I, I've been talking on and off with Dan Benjamin about he wanted me to do a show on 5x5. And I was like, I don't know. I'm a little nervous. Like, you know, I, and the main reason we couldn't get it together was just scheduling wise. Dan wanted to record during the workday and I was still a Tumblr and I couldn't. Um, because I was just too busy and they were, that was never going to happen. Like it was just, it wasn't going to fly. So I really couldn't do a podcast until as long as I was full-time employed. And around late 2010, Instapaper had been going strong. I, I had been doing Instapaper on the side because it didn't, honestly, it didn't take much work in the early days. And so I was just doing it, you know, evenings and weekends and it was really taking off. Like when Instapaper did pretty well on the iPhone, but then when the iPad came out in early 2010, it took it to another level because we had this this amazing reading device in, in the first iPad and that took Instapaper's business in, like through the roof. So that was when, in early 2010, that was when it started making enough money that it could be my full-time job. And then in late 2010, Tumblr was going through some significant growing pains. It, it was about to expand massively into a, a huge new office, hire a huge, you know, huge amount more staff. And so my role was going to change dramatically into being much more of a people manager than a tech manager or than, than a tech contributor. And I'm not good at people management. And so David, David and I sat down one day and we're like, and we're like, basically worked out like, look, this is a good time for me to leave because my job is going to change dramatically in directions that I really don't excel in or want to do. And timing wise, it was, it was like a good time. We had some people who could replace me coming up. So it was, it was, it was a good time for me to step out. And Instapaper was finally, you know, big enough that I could. So we decided, hey, you know, let's part on good terms. This is cool. It's been fun. I'll step out now. And so I left late 2010 and I took Instapaper full time. And, and that, because I had left my job, that gave me the time to start podcasting as well. So that's why around that same time, I think it was early 2011, um, that I started building Analyze with Dan Benjamin. And that's what got me into podcasting uh, as a producer. And this is long, you know, I wasn't making a podcast app yet. This was long before that. But it was, you know, I was doing Instapaper full time then from that point and uh, being a podcaster kind of on the side. And it was a ton of fun. And what did you learn in connecting with people through podcasts and sharing your knowledge with, at least at first, a, an invisible audience? Yeah. 
I had been writing a blog this entire time as well, you know, the, and and I occasionally I, I had dabbled in like you know putting sponsorships on it and making it more you know more professional, like more of a thing I that I did. And blogging, I still like writing as a medium. I do it a lot less now, at least publicly, but I, I do it a lot less. But the problem with writing is that the the audience has different perceptions of your work and different reactions, different ways to react, different ways to spread your work. And you have to be very careful with writing because the medium suggests a higher level of seriousness and rigor than you might actually be putting into it or being or intending. So I would find with with writing that if I if I made a little tiny mistake or if I wrote something a little bit the wrong way that I didn't necessarily think I was, you know, having a certain attitude or saying a certain thing, people would take it you know, a different way than what I intended, which, you know, it's not their fault, you know, it's my fault for writing it poorly, but they would take it a different way than I intended, and I'd get a huge amount of blowback from from that kind of stuff. And it would just destroy, like, the rest of my week. Like, I would, I would feel so bad, I would try to, you know, write corrections or try to update, and it was tough. Podcasting, I, I fairly quickly realized podcasting didn't have that dynamic nearly as much. It was almost none. Because podcasting, you're hearing... A person talking and you're hearing their tone you're hearing their personality you're hearing a lot of a lot more context around what they're saying and i think you inherently by having more information about the person and what they're communicating i think you give them more the benefit of the doubt so if i say something that sounds a little bit wrong if you take it a certain way you're most likely not even going to notice because you're kind of auto-correcting in your head as you're hearing me talk. You're hearing, oh, this is a casual, unscripted conversation. This is this person with this kind of personality. Like You, you kind of get all that. That doesn't come across in writing nearly as much or nearly as well. So if I would say something in writing that could be misconstrued in some terrible way, not only would the people who, who read it on a regular basis have a pretty high chance of, of having, that, you know, having that interpretation, but then it would spread. And then people would like, you know, take it, link to it, quote it. And then other people who had no context of who I was or my personality or what I was trying to say, they would then also see that in the worst possible way. And it would spread like wildfire and create this horrible dynamic. Well, podcasts, you have easier interpretations in the first place. You have people giving you more benefit of the doubt in the first place because they they can get more information about context and your personality and the environment, things like that. And then also, it doesn't spread like that. There is no mechanism that's really effective in podcasts for spreading, you know, small clips of a podcast in ways that spread really easily and get retweeted and reposted and go viral and get somebody in a lot of trouble. That doesn't really happen much in podcasts. And so the downside of like how bad things can be if you slip up or say something a little bit wrong is much, much lower. Now, the corollary is the upside to how many people you can reach is also much lower because of that lack of spreading dynamic. So it's a very different environment. Like if I'm trying to cause change to happen, say I have some like, you know, big cause that I want to fight for or that I want to advocate for or something I want to like persuade Apple to change some behavior and something. Writing is the better mechanism for that. Writing will is more effective. It can spread more easily. It can get further. But when I'm just having casual discussions or reporting on the news for the week and discussing it, I greatly prefer podcasting. It is way less time and effort, which is another huge benefit. But the audience dynamic of not assuming the worst of me constantly is wonderful. And then even though the the height 
of how how far you can reach is lower with podcasting because of the lack of spreading. The people who are there are very loyal and they have lots of context of who you are. And so the audience that you get, it's going to be smaller than like a YouTube audience, a blog audience. Like it'll be smaller for sure, but it'll be a better audience. And I have found over time, I greatly prefer that compared to trying to get as many people as possible to see this blog post I wrote and then have it blow up in my face. Wow. So you had this very early experience of positivity with the medium, particularly with build and analyze starting on five by five. Where did this show and this very early positive experience take you? What were the opportunities that followed? When I was on five by five, you know, Instapaper was still the thing. I think I, I don't think I, let's see, I launched Overcast after. Yeah. So it, so it didn't, what it did for me, it got me into the world of this community, like this, that, you know, that was still very much forming at the time, but still the community that, that kind of became my main audience, my main professional community, it got me into that world. It got me, you know, knowing these people, you know, meeting, meeting the different, you know, different, the different hosts on five by five, you know, this is how I got to, got to know like Merlin and John Syracuse. And like, it was a very formative, influential time for that. And it kind of got me into this world of podcasting of like that group, you know, cause podcasting is a big world and uh, there's lots of different podcasts and lots of people who listen, who have, who have no idea who, who any of us are, but this got me into that group and, and started forming that group. And so that, it, that was massively influential and, and formative. And then it also, it made me just get better at trying to communicate my ideas. You know, when, when I first started doing build and analyze, I was so nervous every single episode. It was hard. It like, to do a, a what what is effectively a form of public speaking every single week, you know, unscripted and, and mostly unprepared besides maybe an outline, it was hard. But it got me more comfortable with it over time. And I did that show for a couple of years. But by, by the end of it, I was really comfortable in front of the microphone. And I was able to talk to more people. I was able to express myself more clearly. I was way less nervous. And yeah, and I just got better at it. And that enabled me to then take the next step of a little while after that, after that show ended, doing neutral with John and Casey, who, you know, Casey, I knew since I was a kid, John, I met through five by five and that whole scene. And then neutral became ATP. And then that had its own, you know, slow build into what it is now. And same thing with ATP. Like I, I started out being a little more nervous and, you know, not as good at it. And over time, like we've kind of, we've established a really great pattern for ourselves and a really great format for the show and a really great audience. And now we have this amazing community there. It all started with you know, that little five by five community all the way back then. And we're kind of doing the same thing now, just better. And for people who are listening, I assume they know what ATP or Accidental Tech Podcast is. But for those who maybe haven't explored it enough or have stumbled upon this episode, how would you define Accidental Tech Podcast? What is it? What has it become for you? If you had to categorize it, it's a show about Apple and tech news. But podcasts, at least the kind of podcasts that, that I make, and frankly, the kind of podcasts I listen to, like I don't, I don't listen to most of the big podcasts. Like if you, if you ask a random person on the street what podcast they listen to, first of all, it's amazing that we live in a time when they actually know what that means and that they probably do listen to something. That's great because that wasn't always the case. Uh, but if you ask you know, random people what they listen to, they're going to give you a list of popular shows. And whatever you can imagine is on that list, chances are I listen to none of them. What I listen to is shows like what I make by people 
like the people who I hang out hang around with on my shows. So, you know, for the most part, it's other nerds talking about nerdy things. Not always tech, but a lot of tech. So, you know, a lot of the relay shows, still listen to Merlin a lot, John, you know, John Roderick, uh, you know, like that kind of stuff. This kind of constellation of nerds and nerdy things that are kind of near each other. That's what I listen to. And that kind of show, unlike some of the big popular shows, this kind of show is so much more about the people than the topic. You know, it's way more about the hosts, the chemistry they have with each other, the personalities they have. Oftentimes the diversions they go off uh, are, are oftentimes are, are more interesting or more entertaining than the official topic of the show. And I think ATP is that same way, where our strength is that we are we are ostensibly a news show and we talk about news topics. But what our listeners are there for is us first and the topic second. Because we've stumbled upon this good trio of hosts that work well to, you know, we work well together. We have good, good chemistry. We're all friends actually. And it works really well. And people like hearing that people like hearing conversations between friends They you know, and it's almost like you're, it's almost like you're in the room. Like when you're listening in the car to somebody's podcast, that's of this style, you almost feel like you're hanging out with your friends. You, you know, you're just not talking much, but, <laughs> but, or you're yelling back at the podcast and they aren't hearing you. Uh, but, but like that kind of feeling, that's what I like about podcasts. So the podcasts that are not that, that are more like, here is a scripted thing that we wrote with our staff of 20 people with an audio bed and these clips mixed in, that's a different style of show altogether. And there's a place for that and there's a huge audience for that, but I'm not that audience. What I want is nerdy people who are friends and have good host chemistry talking to each other about stuff I kind of care about. And when you have that cool dynamic where you like uh, you know, a set of hosts and, and you like their personalities and whatever it is, they can talk about almost anything at that point. And you're probably there for it, you know, because <laughs> that's kind of how conversations between friends are when, you know, if you are talking to your friends, you don't just talk about one thing with your friends in real life. Uh, you can talk about lots of things and you enjoy those conversations. That's how a lot of people listen to podcasts. They are there for the hosts and the, the dynamics and the personalities and the topics are secondary. So going back to your question, what ATP is, is people who get together to talk about tech and Apple stuff. But we actually talk about a lot of different things. We go off on huge diversions and derailments. And it is, on one level, infuriating if you're only there for the news. And we hear from those people occasionally. But for the most part, we've lost all those people already. So the people <laughs> who are left are the ones who are there more for the conversations of the personalities. So it is ostensibly about tech news. But it's really a show about the three of us BSing with each other, mostly about tech, but not always. And it's really interesting and great to hear you speak with such enthusiasm about it and that you are all friends. How has it been to make that into your career? Is it a balancing act to have that fun mixed with professionalism alongside your development work? I think for most people it would be. For us, we are just damn lucky that we can make the show. I, I think for all three of us, I think making the show is very, it comes very easily to us. You know, because for, you know, for whatever reason, like, you know, if you look at like, you know, musical bands that stay together for decades, what gets bands to, to stay together is like, they work really well together. They like each other. You know, they don't have major conflicts. They, they can just work together nicely and easily. And then, you know, you look at bands that break up and it's like they didn't get along well enough. They didn't. It was it was too hard for them or things didn't work out or whatever. ATP is easy for the three of us to make because we work together really well. We're all really laid back and chill to work with. There's no like diva kind of mentality. There's no friction. We just work really well together. 
and then making it a business is similarly easy for us. Because we happen to luck into a decent sized audience and because tech people tend to be on the on the you know middle middle to upper class range on average we are also very attracted to advertisers and so we're we've been able to fairly easily i mean you know it goes up and down but overall we've been able to fairly easily sell our ad inventory over time and it makes decent money and that's first of all a huge tribute to our audience <laughs> we are extremely thankful to them but it also is just luck that like the demographic that we happen to attract with making a tech show uh, happens to be a good audience for advertisers as well. And the medium of podcasting, you know, I was saying earlier about how the listeners you get, they're, you know, they're smaller in number compared to things like YouTube, but they're more loyal. They they stick around, they listen every week, they listen more intently. That also makes them great for advertisers because they are more likely to hear the ad in the first place instead of just skipping over it or, you know, zoning out and having it playing in the background, not paying attention. They're more likely to hear the ad they're more likely to hear multiple episodes of the show over time and therefore hear repeated ads and that builds customer loyalty for for the repeat advertisers. And they're more likely, you know, if we say during the ad, hey, we use this thing and it's pretty good. That also lends credibility to the product and that makes the ads more effective as well. So all of that makes it a pretty good business for advertisers to advertise on our show, which makes it pretty good for us as a business then. Um, and then secondly, we have, again, that same the loyalty people have to the show, you know, the the love people have for their for their nerdy stuff, that also has enabled us to launch a membership program, where we now have paid memberships, and you could pay eight bucks a month and get you know, a couple of bonus things, ad free version of the show and stuff like that. And again, like you can't do that if your audience isn't you know a somewhat large and b likes you a lot and is really into your show. And so that, again, is mostly luck in the sense that, you know, we, we, we serve a nerdy audience like ourselves and they like us. And that's mostly just luck. And so running ATP as a business and making it a business, I'm sure we've, you know, we played a role. Obviously, I'm not going to I'm not going to say we didn't do anything to cause this, but it's also a lot of luck that we happen to have a good audience in a good market that is worth money to advertisers. And it just worked out for us. So it's honestly been a very easy business. It's a decent amount of work every week, but still not like a crushing amount. You know, I'm still able to do other stuff, you know? So it's it's a decent amount of work, but it's a great business. And and we love working together with each other. And membership has really taken it to another level in terms of like smoothing out the ad up and downs. And so it's been great. And I, I really see no end in sight. And you mentioned in there that you have time to do other stuff. You mentioned the app Overcast that you develop. I recall during your story, you also made references to things like the medium of podcasting doesn't really allow that viral spread that text can give you. When it comes to the infrastructure of podcasting and this other half of your professional career or development tasks that you set out for yourself, what can you tell me about your passion for or interest in the underlying technology and delivery of podcasting? What is Overcast and other software mean to you so you know as as i was going through my five by five days and everything i slowly went from using you know i mean originally when i was listening to podcasts originally on you know an ipod or burning cds or whatever then moved into the 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 early iphones in the iphones it was literally just a tab in the music app for a while eventually they broke it into its own app and then eventually i discovered third-party podcast apps that were just better and the one i got super into uh, downcast was the one that that ended up fitting me the best I kind of went on that journey of going from the first party app to Downcast during Build and Analyze during my 5x5 time. I was working on Instant Paper, so that was the whole thing. But 
Instapaper was starting to get, you know, kind of get out of my control. Like it, it was needing too much. And frankly, the money was going down because I, I had a one-time purchase and that works great for a little while. And then it doesn't work that, that well anymore. And there was a lot of competition in that market. And that was a whole thing. People wanted an Android app. People want, and so it was like, everything was, was kind of spreading me too thin. I decided to sell it. And around that time, I was like, wait, you know, I've been using third-party podcast apps and they've been fine, but I would do things a little bit differently. And of course, I'm a programmer. <laughs> you know, that's, that's what you think about every every app. That you When you're this kind of nerd, like every app, you're like, well, if I made this app, I would do things a little bit differently than what they do, you know. But unfortunately, there's only so much time in the day you can't make every app. Uh, but you can make one or two. And <laughs> and so as Instapaper was becoming too big and I then I chose to sell it, I had an opening in my capacity. I had had a couple of ideas for what I would do with a podcast app with Overcast. It ended up being Smart Speed and Voice Boost. And I, I made a prototype and it worked pretty well. Like I, I had a prototype that that was running these processes on the audio. And I was like, wow, this does sound a lot better or this does make it a lot easier to listen. <laughs> and so I had those those sparks of ideas. I'm like, okay, I want to make an app around these. I want to make my own podcast app. I was listening to more and more podcasts at the time because they were really becoming big. And you know, any app that you use a lot, you know, you want to replace. So I decided my next app would be a podcast app. And I also, you know, the podcast landscape at the time, it was the big app of Apple Podcasts. And there were a couple other things that were coming out, like um, Stitcher was out. And Stitcher scared the crap out of me for the future of the business in particular, because at the time, all the nerdy podcast apps, Pocket Cast, Downcast, you know, all that stuff, they were all paid apps. This was like the time of the app store progress where paid apps were still very commonplace, but they were just getting destroyed in the market by free alternatives. Again, Instapaper was the same problem. <laughs> and also at the time, YouTube was really getting big, really, really big. And YouTube was basically had basically locked down video for itself. And Facebook was getting really big. And Facebook had almost entirely locked down the world of text publishing. You know, at that time, if you were writing a blog or publishing a news site or whatever, you really depended a lot on Facebook to be the gatekeeper of all your traffic. And if you were making video content, there were other video sites before YouTube or alongside of YouTube in the early days. Most of them are either dead or very marginalized now. If you want to publish video, you basically have to do it on YouTube. There were no alternatives that were viable coming into like, you know, the, the, the 2012, 2013 time. And, and I think that is, that is largely still true today. I mean, today we have, it's a little bit more complicated with like TikTok and Instagram, but I think for the most part, YouTube is still extremely dominant in video. And it scared me that video and text were getting locked up by these like, you know, single large companies. It scared me that it might happen to podcasting. And Stitcher had come out. And again, this is an area where you had Apple being the free app built into the phone. And then all these other cool apps that were all paid that nobody effectively was buying compared to the free versions. Stitcher came out and very quickly got pretty strong market share. I think it was on the order of like five or 10%, which is like out of, out of, in a very short time. And the reason people were using it was because it was free. Like I would ask people who were using it, oh, you know, what, you, what is that app? And, you know, why do you use it? And people kept saying over and over again, oh, I'm using it because it's free. And I realized, okay, the podcast app environment needs more competitors in it to make it more diverse and they have to be free. And what scared me about Stitcher was that they were not being good participants in the open RSS-based podcast ecosystem. They were proxying files and re-hosting them themselves and building their own little walled garden. 
again, that scared me from the point of view of like, you know, somebody who had been through the decline of blogs at that point and, and you know, the, the capturing of video by YouTube. So I decided I, I wanted to make a podcast app anyway, just for myself, and I decided it's going to be a free app and I'm going to try to get as many users as possible. I'm going to try to go mass market with it to try to stem the tide away from these things that are that are going to come in here for free and lock it up like Stitcher. And so that was the goal with Overcast. It was like, make it free up front, find other ways to make money with in-app purchase or unlocks or ads or whatever, get out there and get it something that is simple enough that people will want to use it. Because And again, my app of choice at the time was Downcast, and Downcast has a ton of features. It's a very power user kind of app, but it really, it, it was very intimidating for average consumers because it, it's a very complicated, visually very complicated app. So I was like, all right, I want to be able to have this kind of functionality, this level of power, but have it be simpler so people can actually use it and have it be free and also build it around these two prototypes, Smart Speed and Voice Boost that I had made that I thought were pretty cool. So that was how Overcast was born. And that's why it, those choices were all made. That's why it was free up front. And because I was the first kind of like nerdy podcast app that was also free, I got a huge amount of market share early on. And eventually all those other apps had to eventually follow my lead and become free as well. And I, I didn't do that to attack them. I, I did it to establish a foothold in the consumer market, like in like the regular people market. And it's funny, eventually I did pass Stitcher and market share and that was a glorious day. And, and that's, not, that's not because I dominated the world, it's because they went down, but still it was <laughs> like, I, it felt very good to me. And it kind of was like a win for open podcasting. And that's ultimately what I wanted to do is like preserve open podcasting and make a really cool app that I thought was, uh, that, that fit my needs. And that, that's what Overcast is. That's fantastic. And it's very um, interesting and useful the way you've characterized it alongside the, as you say, fall of more open or competitive video and text. Aside from your own business success in this area, your role as a podcaster, your interest in producing this content, if someone asks you, why is open podcasting important? How do you answer that question? What is it about the openness and that basis in RSS that is so significant? I think if you look at the web in general, you know, what has made the web, and, and people hardly even use that term anymore, but, you know, the internet, <laughs> mm. you know, what has made the internet so powerful and so liberating to so many people and so disruptive to so many industries is that it's, for the most part, decentralized and that anybody can go launch a blog or a website or whatever and have it be part of this big ecosystem that you know everyone else can access and you don't need to like go make deals with all these different gatekeepers to get your stuff to be visible on the internet like you don't have to go work with all the backbone providers you know oh you, oh, you got to go to like comcast and you know verizon and uu net or whatever you know whatever <laughs> whatever all these people are you, know, you don't have to like work with you know go make a, a business deal with some big company sign a contract you can you can deliver to their customers over their fiber lines like there isn't any of that with the open web and what that does is enable much smaller entrance to the business to come in and participate with no real disadvantages over the big the big entrance. Most industries don't work that way. You know, like most industries, most businesses in the rest of the world are not that easy to get into and are and are not that open and, and free to access. And so it's very important for me that the web works this way. Unfortunately, the way the internet has developed and the way, you know, the way these companies have developed over time, it also makes it possible for somebody to build up a whole lot of audience in one place and then for them to start dictating terms to other people to access that audience. While the infrastructure underlying it all, servers, IP networking, you know, stuff like that, that's all open and decentralized. But 
audience attention is oftentimes focused through gatekeepers. And it scares me that like, if I want to publish something in some form, that this wonderful open medium that we've had for so long in the internet, that openness is being marginalized in certain areas because, oh, well, if you actually want to access anybody watching video, it has to be on YouTube. Well, that puts YouTube in a position of being able to dictate terms to the entire publishing world. And we do see, like from other businesses, um, like I, I know people criticize um, Walmart for you know using this term monopsony, which is basically like there's, you know, instead of being like one provider to m- multiple buyers, it's there's one buyer for all the providers. And like Walmart is the one buyer for so many types of goods that they can dictate terms to manufacturers and, and kind of have, have an overreach of their control and have negative effects on the rest of the, the rest of the ecosystem. Mm. That same thing happens with content and publishing, where if you have too much audience attention being gated by one company's power, Facebook, YouTube, you know, Google, whatever the case may be, they can then dictate terms to everyone else who tries to make content in that entire medium. And you kind of have to play ball. And I hate that on so many levels. And to some degree, some of that's going to be inevitable in, in certain markets. But podcasting has, has resisted that way better than any other market has. Way better than text, way better than video. And by the way, largely that's Apple's fault. Largely, you know, Apple has a very dominant position in podcasting, but they don't abuse it. At least not yet. They never have. They're kind of like sleeping giants. Podcasting is kind of too small for Apple to really try to lock it down and try to extract tons of value out of it for themselves and, and make it worse for everyone else. But their position is so big that other people really can't like break them up and take much share from them. So podcasting has greatly resisted those efforts to be locked down or to have all the attention stuck behind one gatekeeper and, and have to dictate terms. It's great because I can still just like put up a website on a server anywhere and put up some MP3 files and an RSS feed and I have a podcast. And I take a couple of steps, like, you know, submit it to the Apple podcast search directory and then it shows up in every app. That's amazing. And that's how the internet is supposed to work. And that's how many things on the internet used to work. And now it's harder or more complicated or, you know, there's not enough people in that mode to support it. Podcasting still is that way. And that's why it's just it's so important for me to keep it that way because it's so powerful as a publisher and frankly as a listener. You know, when things get locked up behind single companies, not only does that hurt the publishing side of things in the terms of you know you have to then work with that company and whatever terms they dictate you have to play along. And you know, if they're going to be middlemen between you and your audience, you're probably going to lose control. You're probably going to lose some money. You know, so that's that's a whole thing. Then on the consuming side of things, on you know for the for the customers or listeners or users. They have little choice in how they consume things either. Like if you are watching video, you know, you're going to have to be watching it on YouTube mostly. And you're going to then be, first of all, you're going to be tracked. You're going to be served ads, you know, all the stuff there. And you're going to have limited choices in your client experience. You're going to have to use their app in all likelihood. And, you know, whatever choices their app makes, you're stuck with those choices. Well, when you use the open ecosystem of the web as your basis for things, you can, you know, the publishers can do whatever they want with fewer to no middlemen. And then the users, they can consume that content in whatever way they please, as long as the publishers make it available in that way. So you have options, you have different podcast apps, you have different web browsers, you have different reading apps that can parse web pages like Instapaper and, and you know, serve them in different ways. You can read on, on your Kindle, you can, re- you can read on your tablet, whatever it is. Like, 
you have the the diversity on both sides. You have you know publishers doing whatever they want, not having gatekeepers get in their way. And you have users being able to consume the content in whatever way they want without having to use somebody's you know, mediocre ad and tracking heavy app. And that's, that's a great place to be. And the more, the, the more spaces that we can preserve that still work that way, the better. And unfortunately, there aren't many left, but podcasting is one of them. And, and I, I intend to keep it that way as long as possible. That's a super comprehensive view of how the web should work. And I really appreciate it. It's put a lot of your own story and the motivation for how you develop your app overcast and how you produce the content that you do. I suppose with that idea of how you want the web to continue going, are there any other elements of podcasting's future that you would like to comment on? Or are there any things that you would like to see in your own future as a podcaster and developer? You know, back when Overcast started, I mentioned that Stitcher was was kind of scaring me. Mm. Today, it's Spotify. Spotify scares me now in podcasting. Spotify has gotten more control in the podcasting market than Stitcher ever had, and I don't see it. I, I don't see them ever losing that control. Fortunately, Apple still dominates. You know, they they battle with numbers and stats back and forth. You know, PR. There's a lot of PR that suggests that Spotify is the largest podcasting app, and and it really isn't by far. But, you know, there's like certain words you can use, like if you put this word over on this claim, it makes it true, or, but it's kind of misleading. Spotify has a good level of control, though. They have you know, a strong market position and they the, the way they do things is much more locked down. It is not as much of a participant in the open web. It is not as much of a, of a good citizen in the podcasting world. And they are more about those levels of consolidated control. You have to use their apps. You have to listen to their ads. You have to have their tracking and and their experience. And frankly, their podcasting experience is not very good. <laughs> a lot of the the entries in the podcasting space over the years have been people who have been told by their bosses or some trade magazine that podcasting is a big deal. And so they're like, oh, okay, uh, we're going to make a podcast feature. And they do a podcast feature without really understanding it. Uh, without really having much love for the medium at all or having much experience with the medium. And they make a really crappy experience for people. And Spotify combines a crappy experience with locked down control. So, of course, it offends me on multiple levels. (laughs) So I hope that they don't advance any further into podcasting and into their control over the medium. I know they're trying to. Of course they are. They're a big company. That's what they do. You know, you show a big company a way to lock something down and insert themselves as middlemen to make money off a whole industry, and they're going to try for sure. It's in their nature. They're going to keep trying to insert themselves into the entire business of podcasting. They, I think, would love it if all of us podcasters had to work with them, had to use their platform, had to distribute to their audience, had to use their ad tools and their demographic tools and things like that. And I hope that doesn't play out that way. So far... You know, they took a big chunk of share, but then I think they stopped. I think they what they could easily get kind of ran out. And I hope that's where it ends. But we'll see what happens. They are a big force to be reckoned with for sure. And secondly, I hope Apple doesn't turn bad. They kind of scared us a little bit when uh, about a year or two ago, they launched premium paid podcasts that are only available in Apple Podcasts. That was not a great thing for the ecosystem. It still remains not a great thing for the ecosystem. I'm still not not happy about it for lots of reasons, but it didn't have a huge impact. You know, it wasn't like the you know an extinction event for podcasters and for independent podcasts and, and apps. But Apple could cause such an event if they tried. 
and hopefully they won't. And I, and I think that I think the people there have their heads in the right place with this. I'm not too worried. It's funny, like only one time I had a chance to to very briefly meet Eddie Q. And Eddie Q is the Apple executive who I believe is the top of the organization that podcast is is in, I think. Mm. I was like walking past him at an event one time. And the one thing I said was, please don't ruin podcasting. <laughs> I had I had the chance to say one thing to Eddie Q. That's what I chose to say. I, I think overall they're hedging in the right place. I, I worry as Apple tries to seek more and more services revenue, I worry they're going to try to push harder into podcasts because most of the low-hanging fruit that they could pick service revenue from is is already picked. So they're going to start, you know, it's like fracking. Like they're, they're going to start like finding different ways that are more destructive to extract a little bits more service revenue out of different places. And at some point, some executive is going to look at podcasts and be like, hmm, maybe we can get more money out of that. And I worry the amount of power they have in the business, if it went bad, that could be very destructive to the podcasting world. I hope it doesn't go bad. And so far, it hasn't gone bad, but it's always a future risk. So I worry about those things. But for the most part, I'm very proud of our of our industry here for being extremely resilient towards attempts to lock us down. Many people have tried over the years. Most have completely failed in a comical way. And the few that have gotten any inroads at all, like Stitcher or Spotify, for the most part, we've kept them from becoming any kind of dominant force. I hope that dynamic continues, but uh, we'll see. Well, I mean, it's not it's not a fight that I intend to stop fighting because <laughs> I'm not I'm not going to turn my back on it for a second. But I think I think our odds are pretty good. No, that's fantastic. And thinking about your narrative, everything you've said about the industry and the medium of podcasting, is there anything that I haven't asked you? in this conversation that you would like to touch on before we finish. I think that's good. There we go. Well, I want to say a big thank you, Marco, for joining Really Specific Stories. It's been really intriguing to hear about your own narrative and where you think podcasting has come from and where it's going. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to all my rambling. <laughs>